Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. So we are carrying on in the book of Acts. We are into chapter 2. So let me read chapter 2 of Acts, verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They're filled with new wine. That is the word of God. So, I think everybody has seen, probably, The Wizard of Oz. But what you may not have done is read the book. And here, we're, I'm going I'm to kind of splice two things together here. Because there's, you know, this may sadden you, but do you know in the book, Dorothy never says, we're not in Kansas anymore? It's not in the book. So, it's in the movie. But it's very important because it actually touches on something, really. It captures what's happening in the book really well. So when Dorothy is uh, in her house and the cyclone uh, takes her mysteriously away to another land and she falls asleep, she passes out in the, in the house. And it comes down and she wakes up with a thud when it hits the ground. And when she looks out at the world she sees, the land of Oz, here's what she says, or here's what Frank L. Baum writes. The little girl gave a cry of amazement and looked, out, looked about her, her eyes growing bigger and bigger at the wonderful sights she saw. The cyclone had set the house down very gently for a cyclone in the midst of a country of marvelous beauty. There were lovely patches of green sward, that's lawn, all about, with stately trees bearing rich and luscious fruits. Banks of gorgeous flowers were on every hand, and birds with rare and brilliant plumage sang and fluttered in the trees and bushes. A little way off was a small brook, rushing and sparkling along between the green banks and murmuring in a voice very grateful to a little girl who had lived so long on the dry, gray prairies. She stood looking eagerly at the strange and beautiful sights. And at that point, you don't hear that in the movie, but that's what she experiences. That's when in the movie she says, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I can't say it like Judy Garland. (laughs) You should be concerned if I could. (laughs) So... That word, though, that, that, that phrase, we're not in Kansas anymore, is appropriate because it captures the mood. What is happening to Dorothy is she has stepped out from one world and into another. 
She has left something familiar behind, and she's now entered into something altogether concerning. At the end, you'll notice it's described as beautiful and strange, because there's something wonderful about what she sees, but also off-putting, because you're going to see in a moment, well, you won't, because I'm not going to read it, but she encounters talking animals and scarecrows and winged monkeys and munchkins and all these different things. And so what she does when she comes in out of one world and into a new one, she's all at once attracted and repulsed by it. And this, my friends, is Pentecost. Pentecost introduces us to something unique, something utterly new that was God was doing in the world at the time and in all human history as well. And so it's all at once beautiful what's going on in Pentecost, but especially for us uptight Protestants, a little disconcerting because you hear the word tongues and you get a little rattled, right? And so what's going on? And like Dorothy, we come into this strange and beautiful time of Pentecost and we're left to wrestle with what is going on in this whole scene. And what we're seeing, and you know what makes you uncomfortable as well? It's not just tongues, but there's an expressiveness here. There's exuberant worship. There's tongues, emotions, miracles. And I'll tell you, it's very, I said it earlier as well, Christians that don't embrace the miraculous are not Christians. And the, the miracles of what's going on here, that it's not just people randomly spouting off tongues and finding a naturalistic answer to, you know, they must have studied. It must have been an orchestrated, you know, flash mob. Uh, that's not what's happening here. What's being described is a miracle. You can either accept it as a miracle or not. And so as Christians, we have to accept it. And we can't simply say tongues are something of a bygone era and it doesn't exist anymore unless Scripture tells us that. And we're going to see a lot more in the book of Acts because it happens regularly. But in this passage alone, when we look, what we see is something new is happening. Something brand, not just new to you and I, brand new in the history of creation is happening at this moment. And we're going to look, and the three things we see is that the Pentecost brings us, it brings all of us, a new time, a new intimacy, and a new power. So we're going to walk through those as quickly as we can. So, first, it's a new time. The very first verse of this chapter is wonderful. It starts very plainly, you'd think. When the day of Pentecost arrived, right? Pretty straightforward. Is it up there? Could we have that, that verse? There it is. Now, if you have a different translation, it may see, say, when, when it had come, as the King James will say, when the Pentecost had fully come. And the reason is, uh, the, listen, I love the ESV, but here I think it, it's a little anemic. The word for arrived is the word pleru. And pleru is used regularly in the, in the New Testament, 86 times. And it means to be fulfilled or to complete something more often than not. And specifically, it's used in places like Galatians 4 when it says, at the fullness of time, Christ came. Or when Jesus is, is in, in Luke, he uses it as well, speaks about Jesus' time coming. Meaning, it's, there's, it's almost like there's an anticipation that whatever is happening has been on its way. It's been coming and now it is being fulfilled. And so Luke, when he says that the Pentecost is arriving, being fulfilled, he's conveying the sense that this is not just another Pentecost. This is an important time that something, the time has been leading up to. It's something significant that's happening. Every scholar will recognize that. Luke is, although he's a great historian, an ancient historian, and I say great historian because his, his meticulousness is acknowledged by secular and, and Christian writers alike, as being meticulous and in the same vein in some ways as Thucydides and all these other ancient historians. But what Luke seems to also know, or at least believe, is that this is not just a continuation of Israel's story, but it's a significant new chapter in it. 
Yes, it's a continuation, but there's something brand new, something that we should take up and notice that, that is going on. So if, if Pentecost here, this moment in history, first century Judea, if, if it is significant, you should at least know something about Pentecost. Right? So let's talk about what Pentecost even is. So it's a Greek word, Pentecost, that means 50th. And it's the Greek understanding of, of a feast that Israel had been going through and, and performing and celebrating for a very long time called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of the First Fruits. Essentially, it's a harvest festival. And it, it celebrates the harvest of or the first barley harvest. And the reason it was called 50th, Pentecost, is because it takes place 50 days after Passover. And so what, there's, what would happen is this, pilgrims would come. So it was one of three main feasts in Israel that pilgrims would come to. So it was Passover, Pentecost, and Sukkoth uh, tents, uh, to booths, the, to the Feast of Booths. And so when people came, oftentimes, uh, for Passover, many would stay the 50 days for, this, for the Pentecost as well. And the reason is, if you look at this map here, here's a map of all the different nations that are mentioned in this passage that we just read, where people are coming. And if you happen to come from Parthia, which is not the farthest, but it's, it's at the extreme right end here, west, eastern end. If you went there, you would have, if you walked 12 hours a day, it would take you 37 days to get to Jerusalem. So I don't know if you can walk 12 hours a day. I haven't had to do that in my life. Uh, but with children, I assure you, I couldn't get, I couldn't drive 12 hours a day with the kids in the car because I'm stopping and they, they get tired. So, it, but imagine 37 days. So if you're doing that, you're probably going to want to stick around a little longer. It's a costly thing. It's an expensive, it's expensive. It's dangerous to travel. So it's a big, significant, significant uh, investment to make one of these pilgrimages to Jerusalem. So, if we look at it from that side, and we're going to talk more about Pentecost, but if, if you look at it from that angle as another year of celebrating this feast, then the symbolism is rich, because here we have the first fruits of the resurrection. The very first fruits of belief, of Christianity, are being reaped here at Pentecost. And so there's, there's symbolism that's worth checking out there. But there's something even more significant, I think, happening. Well, I want to talk so much, but one of them is this. Over time, Israel had come to see this feast as not just about the harvest, but as representing the anniversary of the receiving of the law at Mount Sinai. And the reason is Exodus 19.1 talks about how is, uh, that's not, we're not there yet. Um, Exodus 19.1 is how, it speaks about how uh, on the third month after coming out of Egypt, God gave them the law. And so Israel starts to say, you know, this is our, this is, uh, Pentecost is like that. Pentecost is a celebration of this as well. And this is when, what happened at, at Mount Sinai. Israel gathers around Mount Sinai after leaving Egypt. And when they get there, this is significant. This is why Pentecost is so interesting and what you read here in Acts. When they get to Mount Sinai, Israel realizes something. That God is dangerous. He is holy. He is not just a paper God. He's not a two-dimensional God. He's not just a fabrication of a mind uh, of the human will wanting better things. Why wishful thinking? He's a God that is terrifying. And on Mount Sinai, here's what we read that they experienced. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And so at Sinai, God shows up in fire and wind and storm. And so... What did he do there? God takes Israel. He sets the, he rescues them from Egypt. He sets them apart for himself. 
and then he gives them the law. And the law is what makes Israel weird. The law is what says, you're going to behave and act this way in the world, and the world's going to hate it, because you're going to treat my word as true. You're going to start living a certain way that is counter-cultural to the world. So you're going to stick out like a sore thumb when Scripture calls them his peculiar people, people, because they were peculiar. That's why. And so he makes them a new people at Mount Sinai. So think of the symbolism now. Now we turn to Pentecost, and in wind and fire, God shows up again, and he gives them spirit, which, again, we're going to talk a lot about. And what he is doing is he is saying, again, you are a new people here. I am doing a new thing. You are, all those things the prophets had spoken about, it's happening now. Because the prophets always spoke in tandem of the kingdom, the Messiah, and the spirit being poured out at the same time. They always spoke as if it's all going to happen at the same time. And so what you're seeing is a new time, but it's a fulfillment of something promised long ago. And look at just two places in the Old Testament where you see it prophesied. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then Ezekiel 36. This is more, more direct. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put with, uh, sorry, a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. And so, when Luke brings up, I don't know if Luke understood it, or if it's the Holy Spirit working through Luke, I don't, under, I don't know, because I obviously have never spoken to him. But one way or the other, what is coming through in this imagery is God is doing a new thing. He's creating a new people. It's a new time for humanity here. And we're going to talk more in a minute. Uh, put very, if you want to go back to the Wizard of Oz, uh, they're, they're not in Kansas anymore. Things have changed. So, the new time. But then there's this new intimacy. And the the strangeness of Oz for Dorothy comes to us in the strangeness of Pentecost. Because it is weird. Even if you're a hardcore, charismatic, Pentecostal type, you're still going to find, if you don't find tongues a little strange, then, I don't know. It's weird. It's odd. And we feel uneasy by verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You see, it's awkward. It feels losing control. We humans are so despicable. We, we manipulate. We're so rotten that we are naturally very critical of people. We naturally assume ourselves to be smarter than everybody else. We assume everybody else is fake and we're not, even though we are. And so it's an awkward thing. What do we make of this idea of tongues? But here's what I would say. We get so confused with how they are speaking, we are blinded to what they're saying and what it means. And, we, and, and we'll, we'll spend time in this book and throughout, and if you come on Tuesdays, we spend a lot of time talking about tongues in much more detail than I can do here. But what they're doing, what they're doing is this, telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. When the Spirit comes, we focus on, oh my goodness, they're speaking other languages. What does that mean? Do we have to be speaking other languages? Is that... Proof of being saved. Uh, what if I don't? And we get so caught up on that, we fail to see that the first thing the Spirit does is come and cause us to worship. That's the first and foremost power of the Spirit. He comes into us and he gives us reason to worship. He doesn't coerce worship. He doesn't demand worship. But it's silly to even say, does God force us? Come on. I get a little frustrated, you know. I'm so honest up here. I, I'm sorry. The church is not new. 
God doesn't come and force us to do anything. But if he is God, if he is altogether lovely, perfect, and beautiful, and you see him, you're going to either be terrified by his holiness or drawn to it. Don't make it sound like, oh, God is unjust. You're choosing to worship him or not. You are choosing one way or the other. You choose. But in your sinfulness, you cannot choose other than, your, other than yourself. But God comes to some, and I don't know how, I don't know why, but he comes and some people find him lovely and worship, and some don't. And if you don't believe it, look at this passage. Do you notice no one is saved by tongues? Nobody's saved. No one says here, they heard the tongues and the miracles and they were converted. No, because miracles don't convert. Miracles reveal faith. They don't produce faith. And so you're going to see what happens next. You know when 3,000 people believe? When it is explained to them, when the gospel is explained and preached to them. That's what happens. Because a sign without interpretation is useless. And I've said this to you before. If, I'm, if I walk in a little old lady across the street, do you know my motives? No. I could be doing it because I know you're watching and I want you to think I'm a good pastor. I could be doing it because I'm going to mug her when she gets to the other side. I could do it because I want to get in her will. I could do it because uh, my wife is watching and I still want her to think I'm the man she married. I could do it because my kids are watching and I want to look like a good guy. I could do it purely because I have nothing else to do. The only thing that renders my action unambiguous is speech. You have to hear from me and talk to me and ask and inquire. And this is what's happening here. There's an incredible thing going on here. That God, when he comes to some of us, I don't know why. Some people choose him and some people don't. You all know where I stand on this, but I don't understand. There's a mystery there. I have told you before, when I fell in love with Sarah, did I fall in love with her? Did I have, is it Elvis Presley? I can't help falling in love with you. Right? Or did I choose to fall in love with her? The answer is yes. I don't know. Because I feel, I feel like I had no hope, no chance. I know I had no chance, but I also know I willingly gave it. I willingly fell in love with her. What I, here is the crux, though. I know that sinner though I am, I cannot choose anything good unless Christ reveals it to me. So whatever mystery there is, he's the first mover, not me. That much I know. That scripture is clear. Why some, I don't know, but here's what I do know. He won't coerce. He won't ravish, as John Donne, the old poet, says. He only woos. Remember that, uh, I'm sure you remember it, Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah? Not a Christian song. Don't ever play it in a church, please. If you go to a church that's playing that song at a worship service, leave. <laughs> but, fascinating line in it. Well, you all know it. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. She tied you to the kitchen chair, she broke your throne, she cut your hair, and from your lips, she drew the hallelujah. See what happens? Now, this is a negative example that Leonard Cohen is coming up with. But what God does is he draws the hallelujah from us. He draws it. He comes to us and reveals himself to us in such a way that we cannot but help but worship. He draws it from us. And this is what we see all through Scripture. This is what we see him doing at Pentecost. He comes to people. And here's the part we have to remember. As I, I say this for Redeemer specifically and us Protestant types and me, because I'm an intellectual who struggles to be emotional. And most of us are, or else you wouldn't be here. Most, not all. And what Pentecost does and what the Pentecostal movement 120 years ago started, and we have to remember and thank them for, is it reminds us that God is not just there to be known, but to be experienced. And so God is not just objectively known, but subjectively known. He is there to objectively be known, studied, and obeyed. 
but he's also there to be understood and welcomed and experienced as healer, comforter, lover, friend. And there's a balance that has to be done. Of course there's a balance. But we can't throw anyone out and, and reject the other side. It's balanced. You can't, you have to balance between emotionalism, which is the over the top emotion, where you come to think service must be emotional or else I'm not feeling God. If I don't feel him, he's not there. That's a lie. But we have to also avoid the other side. That is intellectualism that says, because I understand the doctrine, I am saved. Both are wrong. Both extremes have to be rejected and a balance has to be there. And if we don't do it, we end up, I've had, um, you guys all know I'm not mechanically inclined. I've had cars, we had a lemon of a car a few years back, and the tires were never balanced. They couldn't stay balanced. And if tires don't stay balanced, and I had to write it down because I'm not a manly man, so I don't know what happens, but here's what I do know because I wrote it down. Your, the, the tires wear faster. They're poor fuel economy. The vibration, which I felt, is everywhere, and in time will destroy the suspension of, suspension of the car. And if, it doesn't, if that's not true, all you mechanics out there, blame the website I found it on. But one thing I know, an unbalanced car is not healthy. And an unbalanced Christian that falls on either side is not healthy. Because if you fall on the emotional side alone, then what you're prone to do is forget and neglect the importance of pursuing disciplined behaviors. Discipline in studying God and not just reading crappy websites that speak about God. And we have to focus on those things. But on the other side, if you're only going the other way, the objective side only, which is the Protestant tradition is more prone to that, intellectualism. If we do that, then what we're prone to is first robbing ourselves of joy, and second, robbing God of what he deserves, worship and your heart and your emotions as well. When God says worship in spirit and in truth, what do you think he means? Truth, we know, and we're good at that. Spirit means awe. Do you ever, and I don't know, but do you ever get in a spot where you worship God and are just in awe of him? Where you're just grateful, where you literally weep, good or bad, sometimes just in anger and frustration, other times in joy. Just weep because you don't even know why, but you can't even express the goodness. Have you ever seen, I, surely you've had these experiences, where sometimes you see things and I, you can't even predict it. You're at a park and you see a kid playing with a ball, you see a fish, you see someone playing music, whatever it is, and you're overcome by emotion. I don't know why. We're not emotionalists here. I don't believe your emotions should govern your theology. But there are moments when God will awe us. And he should, if he is God. And so, here's the, 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 I'll close this point here with a wonderful quote from a, an Indian theologian named Ajith Fernando. Um, and he says this, Christians then must constantly seek to recapture what Pentecost signified, vibrant intimacy with God and joyous worship that ensues from it. We have to balance both. So, it's a new time, the new intimacy the Spirit brings, Pentecost brings, and the last one is a new power. Um, it's a dated book, but I wish every Christian read, wrote this book. It's a bit older, and the covers are always old-fashioned, so I don't love it. But it's a wonderful book called The Cross and the Switchblade by David Wilkerson. Most people have, Christians, it's a classic Christian book. About David Wilkerson, who moves to New York City to work with the uh, gangs and young people in New York. Fascinating book, wonderful book. And in it, he says, when you strip it of everything else, Pentecost stands for power and life. That's what came into the church when the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost. And the power and life are together. It's actually a power for life. I would modify, not correct, because I think he's, David Wilkerson would agree. It's power for life. And there's two expressions of it that we see here. A power for your life and a power for mission. 
the world's life, everyone's life. So first, let's start with you and work our way outward. Um, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, which I read earlier, I didn't include the parts that I'm going to read now, and I'll put it up in, I'll make it bigger. In the middle of Jeremiah, he says he's going to bring a new spirit, a new heart into the people, because humanity cannot obey God, cannot. It's impossible to please God and obey God as we are, says Jeremiah, says every prophet in the Bible. So God has to come in and fill them to make them capable of obeying, because otherwise they can't. And so he says, this is why I'm doing this, because they broke my covenant. And more directly in Ezekiel again, in that same passage, he says, I'm doing this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Spirit comes into you not to be a superhero on the street healing people. Not that that's, healing is good, of course. That's not the purpose. The pur- Remember when Jesus, the, the disciples come back in, and they, they're excited because the demons obeyed him, and he says, don't rejoice that the demons obey your command, but instead rejoice because your name is written in the book of life. And so it's okay. Power of these things that come with the Spirit, which we're going to talk about in the future, are good. But the most important thing is that we, the power we get is the power to actually be the people he wants us to be. Because Israel has failed. Israel has not been Israel. If you read Deuteronomy and Exodus, they're supposed to be a nation that will live in such a way that the world will say, gosh, that must be a great God. And they fail to do it. And God knows that if he doesn't intervene, his people will never be the people they're meant to be. So he brings his spirit and says, I'm going to make it now. I'm going to come. I'm going to come in so that you're actually capable of being the people that I've called you to be. And those who are, I've, I mean, all of us, if you don't think you could, if you think you could be the person God wants you to be without the Holy Spirit, boy, you haven't suffered much <laughs> yet. But that's what he's doing. So for us, it's, the, it's that kind of a power, to be the church. But for the world, it's fascinating, because what's going on here is it's impossible to read this passage, I think, maybe not, at least for me it was, and hopefully for you, to not get echoes of what happened at Babel. Remember Babel, when all the languages are confused? And so what seems to be going on here is, I wouldn't say a reversal of Babel, because it's not quite true, but at least something God is doing something to offset the effects of it. In Genesis 11, all the world unites, and they unite against God for one purpose. And the model that's shown there is they decide first to build a city. That's what they're doing first, not the tower. The city is what they want to build. And then at the center of that city, so in other words, we're going to build a civilization. Our hopes and dreams is in that city. And at the very center of our hopes and dreams is a tower to reach God, because we want to be God. And so they're united against God in that moment, and God comes down and confuses their not just their languages, but their understanding. Read the passage again. You're going to see he talks about understanding, not just their tongues. And so, because if it was just languages that he confused, you could get an interpreter, right? Ikea's figured it out. Look at their instructions, right? So it's not just languages. It's an understanding. We no longer can even under, we can't even get along. Even when we're, we think we're driving to the same direction, we still complain about what turns to make. And so that is confused. But then here, at Pentecost, there's different. Humanity now, because they're his church, are united. They're waiting for his spirit, remember? So they're no longer divided. They're not resisting God, fighting against him. But they're together. And this time when God comes down, he doesn't scatter, but he unites them. Now, the diverse tongues still remain. This is why it's not a reversal. It's not like he gives them one language, but he gives them one spirit so that they can understand each other, which is why we can link arms with people across the world because we have a common father and a common spirit and a common language and common everything in that. And so, what is the message? It's God's mighty works. 
And again, we get so distracted by the fact that they're speaking in tongues and by how they've been abused in the church's history that we forget to see that the Spirit comes and he first prompts worship and then he prompts evangelism, which are the same. And so he calls, he may, he, the Spirit comes and they start praises, speaking out the mighty works of God. But notice who they're saying them to? Jews. There's no non-believers in this room in, 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 in Jerusalem. Well, okay, there probably were. But what we're told is it's all gathered believers, all gathered Jews are there. And they get the gospel first. They hear it first. because And this is consistent with Romans. It's the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And the reason is God is saying, I'm going to gather my church first. Before I send them into the field, I need a team to send them out. And so he comes and he preaches the gospel to the Jews first. And then as this team of believers is gathered, they are then sent out into the world. And so Kevin Van Hooser, another, he's a wonderful theologian. He's hard to read because he's a theologian, but he's really generally pretty good. And here's what he says. It's well known that Pentecost reverses, I don't like the word reverse, but he's smarter than me, so I'm going to let him have this one. Um, it's well known that Pentecost reverses Babel. The people who built the Tower of Babel sought to make a name and unity for themselves. At Pentecost, God builds his temple, uniting people in Christ. Unity, interpretive agreement, and mutual understanding is, it would appear, something that only God can accomplish. And accomplish it he does, but not in the way we might have expected. Although onlookers thought that the believers who received the Spirit at Pentecost were babbling, in fact, they were speaking intelligibly in several languages. Note well, they were all saying the same thing, testifying about Jesus in different language. languages. It takes a thousand tongues to say and sing our great Redeemer's praise. And this is the power, the two powers we are given. And I understand, we're going to read this, and I, if you don't know, most of my master's degree was spent studying Pentecostal theology and history. I have nothing negative to say, even if I disagree on points with Pentecostalism. But I will say this, the primary works of the Holy Spirit are worship and proclamation. Tongues is there, but it's not the focus. It's a tree missing the forest. And we see it here as a Christian then, as we see these new things, it's very simple. Live as this new creature that you are. You have a power within you for a new intimacy, for new worship, for new witness. Live that way. Take your faith seriously. Why wouldn't you? And if you're a skeptic, listen, Christianity is going to be as strange to your ears as Oz was to Dorothy. It's going to be very strange. And I'll leave you with this one line from T.S. Eliot, a poet. And he says, it sounds cryptic, but it's not. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. He's, he was a believer. And what he is saying is the only option you have in life is between fire or fire, skeptic, right? every human. And it sounds like it's contra- like it seems paradoxical, fire and fire. He's saying you will either accept and be consumed by the fire of your own choices and your own fears and your own passions and your own biases, or you'll be consumed by the fire of God. But you cannot avoid fire. One way or the other, you will live or die by them. And I assure you, as someone who has done this for many years, and not just, I've, been a, I've been a skeptic longer than I've been a Christian, there is nothing in the world, nothing that will quench the desire you have to see, oh my goodness, your own success, your own ego, happiness, stability, health. See, I've, I've got six children to see them well, to see them saved and in good marriages. Uh, pick a thing. Nothing in the world. You will run from God trying to find a better answer for your fears and for your anxiety, and you will find nothing but more fear and more anxiety. 
you'll be consumed by a fire one way or the other. Christ, run to the fire that when he comes, like at the burning bush, doesn't consume. God doesn't need to suck and drain you for life. He comes and doesn't consume as a fire. He instead warms, heats, and purifies. Run. Run to this Messiah. Let's pray.